A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. If you look around, you may know someone who snores during sleep or your child kicks legs a lot after falling asleep. Are these normal? Should we worry about some health consequences? To answer these questions, we may need an overnight sleep study. So what to expect from the sleep studies? How should we interpret the data we get? Well, what I can tell you is that during the sleep study, there will be sleep technologists. They will help you monitor the sleep data. And there is a board in America called the Board of Registered Polysomnographic Technologists, BRPT. Our guest today is the current president of the BRPT Board of Directors, Andrea Remberg. She's also a clinical informaticist at a company called Data. This company provides FDA-cleared AI-assisted sleep scoring and analysis solution, and their technology has been used by over 400 clinics across the whole United States. So now, let's invite the expert to help answer our questions. Hi, Andrea. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Hi, Dr. Zhu. It's an honor to be here. So very happy to have you. I think you have a very unique background than many of my other guests so far. So how about you introduce yourself to our audience? I kind of stumbled into sleep over a decade ago. I was in the finance world. I was doing loans and all that stuff. And then I had a friend who was doing uh, sleep studies and I, my bachelor's in is psychology. And I often feel like psychology and sleep are very much intertwined and connected And so it it piqued my interest and I was able to go in and shadow her for the night at a sleep lab. And I was able to see, and I I just fell in love with all the brainwaves and the data and, you know, everything that she was doing with it, um, you know, and seeing how quickly they could help the patients, you know, treat their different sleep disorders. It was, it's a fascinating world. So from there I started, um, I was hired at the lab and then I started doing the overnight sleep studies. I've kind of done a little bit of everything in, in sleep medicine. I also helped set up a CPAP and BiPAP machines. So that's the treatment options. If you have obstructive sleep apnea also did a navigator role within the hospital system here in Chicagoland area, Northwestern medicine. And what that was, was screening patients for obstructive sleep apnea and then educating them and then creating that proper care plan to make sure that they were treated properly. And then I am now currently with uh, Enzo Data, the analyzing sleep data. So what this company does is we look at all that data that's being collected in those PSGs testing and to see if there's anything else that um, we help facilitate a faster turnaround time for that scoring of that sleep study, for that analyzing of that data to get the text back to what's more important with, uh, you know, talking with the patient and giving that human component back to that, that patient. 
Oh, cool. I actually heard about this kind of company. I, I don't know which specific company sounds like the one you work with. I know um, researchers are developing better ways to interpret the sleep data to try to understand what's happening at night. And sometimes if we manually do that, it's very slow. But if we have machines help, machine learning or AI's help, uh, I heard sometimes it can be faster. I heard researchers are working on to make it more accurate nowadays. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's some subjectivity when, you know, an individual is looking at scoring of a sleep study. So, for example, what, what we do as a sleep technician is all that data that's collected throughout the night for your sleep study. If you were to come in for a sleep study, we monitor the EEG leads, and that's going to tell us your brain waves, whether you're asleep, awake, and then what stage of sleep that you're in. Uh, we monitor muscle activity, so the chin and leg movements, um, sometimes in that case, arm movements. We also monitor your breathing because one of the main things that we're looking for is if you're stopping breathing at night. And then we also monitor your body's effort. So with belts, all those signals collect data and all of that gives us a picture of, are you, you know, are you going in and out of your sleep stages? Okay. Are you having any type, any type of sleep disorder, you know, breathing problem or any other type of, um, you know, sleeping health problem. And from there, the sleep technologist kind of labels it, right? So it, they label it. Okay. This is the stage of sleep. This is this pattern of breathing. And it's very tedious with drawing every tiny little pattern out there. And what this, you know, machine learning and AI has taught us is that that algorithm can be pretty easily learned to better be able to predict it at a much faster rate than what a human can actually market. Um, you know, it's never meant to replace humans. You know, it's there's still a lot that a, a sleep technologist offers to that patient base and all that. And where we see it is, let us save you time, you know, just to, to score that study and get you back in front of the patients. Yeah. And I think that's also a good explanation of what sleep study looks like. Sounds like people can go into a sleep lab, sleep over the night with a lot of um, things attached to their body. Yeah. And a lot of people are like, how are you ever expecting me to sleep with all this on? Hey, that's a common question I get. Yeah. And most people, you know, the, the drive to sleep is strong enough where most people do fall asleep. You know, for a lot of individuals, it's not going to be their best night of sleep. But ultimately, most the majority of individuals, if not all of them, are in there because they're already struggling with some aspect of their sleep. So our goal is to be able to at least facilitate enough for them to sleep enough for us to get in, you know, just figure out what's happening with them. So it sounds like that's a very good method for people struggling with some aspect of sleep, especially if their sleep doctors encourage them to take a sleep study. Then they go in, sleep through the, light, uh, through the night with all these things attached to their body that can provide really valuable data to help us help the providers decide what's really going on. Yeah, there's a lot that a sleep study can can tell us, you know, about how you're sleeping and identify different sleep disorders, you know, and there's also the home sleep study uh, test that you can do. It doesn't have nearly as many uh, wires or nearly as many much data that is collected with it, but it's a feasible option for individuals who potentially don't want to come into the lab or, you know, maybe it's just a better option for them. 
I find that some patients are more apt to have a home sleep study done than coming into the lab just because it's a little easier and it's more in their comfort zone to get that done. And ultimately, you know, I think us as clinicians, we just want to be able to get these patients diagnosed and treated. Right. Talking about diagnose. So uh, for the home sleep study versus the uh, lab sleep study, what kind of data, like uh, I know they're going to have a report, has AHI and some other values on that. How to understand the main data point? Yeah. So, you know, with the in-lab sleep studies, a lot of the things that we look for is sleep efficiency. You know, are you falling asleep within a certain frame of time? Are you staying asleep? How many times are you waking up throughout the night? For a lot of individuals, they don't either A, they don't think that they woke up at all, or B, they think I didn't sleep at all. And we're like, well, (laughs) we could see from your brainwaves that you really did sleep. You were just getting that poor quality of sleep that you were waking up a lot. And for some individuals, if they're staying in their lighter stages of sleep and not really getting into their deeper stages, that that is a true, or that's an observation that we get a lot with patients. But with the in-lab, it's helping us tell sleep efficiency, how many times on average they're stopping breathing throughout the night. And in order for that event to count, it has to be a minimum of 10 seconds long. So you have to stop breathing for at least 10 seconds, but I've seen a minute and a half, up to two minutes of stopping breathing over and over and over, which is a lot, you know, so that data helps diagnose and identify these different issues that they're having. The home sleep study unit is slightly less. I mean, it's not going to tell us the stage of sleep that you're in, um, but it will still monitor your your breathing patterns. Uh, we actually had new technology come out just this last summer from the FDA clearance to be able to tell sleep or wake from the PPG signals from an HST unit. So from that, we were able to um, identify 12% of that patient population that would have tested negative with a home sleep study unit was able to test positive. How an AHI is calculated is it's based upon the time you differentiate between wake and sleep for that patient. So a patient could be awake and holding their breath, and that's not considered an event. It's only considered if they're actually sleeping. So what that um, identification of sleep or wake was able to do for us with the HST is provide a more clinically valid uh, diagnosis for these patients. Wow, I see. So sounds like the technology is really moving forward. And even you do a home study, home sleep study, you can still get a lot of great data and help with the diagnose process. Yeah, you know, and there's some sleep disorders that you know cannot be identified in a home sleep study, you know, unit and that ultimately the gold standard is still to come into the lab, you know, for that in-lab PSG. But as we're seeing the shift in technology and, you know, the massive amount of patients that are just not diagnosed, it's estimated still that 80% of the patient population are American are not diagnosed yet. So if it's looking at making increasing access to care and increasing access to being able to facilitate this care plan, an HST unit can help, you know, hopefully spread that to get more patients diagnosed and treated. Right. Definitely. Actually, myself did a home sleep study several years ago. I'm sure technology back then possibly much simpler. And in my clinical work, sometimes I would treat patients with other 
issues, right? Anxiety, and they just complain about their sleep a little bit, but they don't think it's a big deal. But if I ask them more, more symptoms, what they're struggling with, I will get some information make me really concerned. I feel like they should really consider a sleep study, but a lot of people don't know such option exists. So I want to ask you, let our audience know more if you know there's something going on with their sleep. If they don't breathe in air enough or they snore at night too much, how is that going to impact their daytime functioning, their performance on tasks? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there, there's all, there was this analogy that I like to think of that really helped me picture kind of the reasoning of why we sleep and all that. When I first started in sleep, I was told by my instructors to Imagine that you start your day off with a backpack and it's empty. And as you go through your day, you're putting brick after brick after brick on. And that's absolutely normal. We expend energy. We do all that throughout the day. By the end of the day, your backpack is super heavy and you need sleep then to empty that backpack to, in order to restore everything. Um, so at the, if you're getting that good quality sleep at night, you're starting the next day with an empty backpack. But if you are having any kind of untreated sleep apnea, any type of arousals, any type of lack of sleep or sleep deprivation, you're starting out the day with your backpack already with bricks on it. And then you're going through that whole day again, adding even more bricks. And it becomes just impossible for you to function, you know, at your optimal levels. You know, sleep clearly gives the body and brain time to, to recover. You know, our sleep serves a function of building and rebuilding muscles, allowing our organs, you know, to rest and recover. It's been tied with such things with uh, short-term memory and long-term memory, you know, translating those memories into, and if you're not sleeping while well, you're, you're starting your day off, like I said, with that backpack, that's full of, of bricks and you're just adding more onto your plate and you're not able to adapt or react as quickly to things in your life. Wow. I like that analogy. To think about we all need time to recharge and reload and to clean up the backpack. That's a good way of thinking of it. Yeah. And there's, you know, another thing too, where they've done some tests where, you know, the brain is actually gets more blood flow after having sleep. So the no sleep, they've done the images of the brain, the blood flow is just not there at all. And, you know, with that blood flow is required for the pre-movement and movement and balance and all that. So if the brain doesn't work, the body doesn't work. Mm. Right. Brain and body, they're always a brain and body connection for sure. So also another question I often get from people regarding this is they feel like from Monday to Friday, you know, life is busy, work is busy. They stay up late to really catch up on things. And then during the weekend, a lot of people choose to sleep in, right? I know a lot of my clients, they sleep until noon or even early afternoon, and they go back to take a long nap during the day. So can people really catch up on sleep like that? No, definitely not. I think that's our biggest, uh, some of the biggest fibs that we tell ourselves that we'll just, you know, we'll sleep later or, you know, short-term sleep deprivation. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll be fine. I'll just make up for it later. And, you know, what we know with our sleeping patterns is we function within what we call a circadian rhythm and our bodies flow within this sleep wake state. And there's so many other things that 
factor into that rhythm. You know, when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, um, the different emotions and moods fluctuate depending on what time of day, you know, your body temperature, your metabolic rate, your hormone release even. Uh, and so what that does is when we, we keep the same schedules, all that stuff runs like clockwork within it. And so if we're switching and we're used to a normal, you know, Monday through Friday, a different, uh, you know, schedule, and then we try to sleep in that throws off all of it. You know, when we're hungry, when we're all of our hormones, all that different stuff, and it can really wreak havoc on your moods and, and just everything else that's involved, you know, with that. And, you know, it's something I always tell, tell individuals that ask me that question too, is if you are able to sleep in on the weekends, that's a huge sign that you're sleep deprived because your circadian rhythm naturally should wake you up at a certain time. It's something too, that people don't realize is there are short sleepers and there's long sleepers. So some individuals are perfectly well getting six hours of sleep at night. Um, you know, they function well, they feel ready to go. And others need more like nine or even 10 hours. What I would suggest for people is to take that time into not set alarms and try to go to bed at the same time. And then try to see when you wake consistently over a week or two, and then see what your body kind of falls into, you know, with that, because you shouldn't ever be able to sleep later. Your body should function within the same rhythm very consistently because of our circadian rhythm. Mm, interesting. That reminds me of another phenomenon that a lot of people, if they set alarm in the morning, they turn off the alarm and they go back to sleep. I also hear some people, you know, because they have to get up uh, to do work at a certain time, and then they do that every day. After a while, their body naturally wakes them up around that time. But if they don't have a meeting, uh, early morning meeting that day, they can still go back to sleep and sleep longer. Can people, when the, the alarm really snooze and people go back to sleep, is that still a good sleep? You know, what we find too, what happens with that is your, the sleep that you're going back into often is going to be a very light sleep. So it's not going to be that restorative sleep. It's not going to be that good quality. And it's almost like, you know, throughout the night, if you were to wake up every five to 10 minutes, that's not going to be good quality sleep. So it's the same thing in the morning. If you're hitting snooze over and over and over, you're drifting yourself in and out of sleep. And that is not going to be any good quality of sleep. You're better off framing it and getting out of bed earlier, you know, and when I also help patients with too, is you go in and out of the, your sleep stages, right? You, you start with N1 and two, and then you go into your deep stage three sleep. And then you also have your REM dreaming sleep. What happens is if you are woken up out of your stage three or your REM, it's naturally going to make you very, very groggy. So like, if you ever wake up and you don't know where you're at, you're super confused, like what's happening. That's typically when you're out of your stage three sleep. But if you are, let's say your morning alarm is consistently set at a certain time and you're waking up groggy, what is helpful is to use the different technology that's out there. Now I know uh, different apps and different watches will help you, but it helps detect when you're in that certain stage of sleep and then gives you a time frame. Like, all right, if I need to be up between Six is the earliest I want to wake up and 7.30 is the very latest. And it'll pick a time within that frame to make sure that it's not waking you up out of your stage three or REM. Typically, 
in the deepest part of REM between four and 6 a.m. is traditionally for a lot of ind- individuals. And the reasoning with that is your, you know, to the point of the circadian rhythm is your body temperature is your, your body is almost primed to have this really deep, good REM between that time period, just because of all these other rhythms that are happening with that. So giving yourself a range of time to wake up within helps prevent some of that to to be woken up out of that deep stage of sleep. So you're getting that restorative sleep that you need. Mm. Oh, I like that. So, um, because a lot of people really pursue longer hours of sleep, sounds like the sleep quality is much more important. How, How much you can recover uh, your whole body, your brain through the sleep. And instead of how much more minutes you really stay on bed trying to sleep. Yeah, definitely. Kind of the whole example of, you know, if you're trying to catch up on sleep on the weekends, it's the same concept when you're eating food, you know, starving yourself all week and then binging on food over the weekend. It's not healthy for you either. You know, we know it takes the balance with that. So it says that's that same theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If we think about food and sleep, there are quite a lot of connections and we possibly can make a lot of great analogies. I think when you mention food, that makes much more sense to me, at least. So we know if there are sleep problems, it may impact ourself, our daily functioning, our performance. But a lot of people always shocked when I tell them there are a lot of more sleep disorders than we know. I remember there are at least 80 different sleep disorders already out there, but most people only heard of insomnia, possibly sleep apnea. So uh, are there any sleep problems that actually more common than we imagine out there that we don't normally hear of? Yeah, you know, you know, we've heard of restless leg syndrome during the day, but for some individuals that doesn't stop. It happens throughout their their whole night in their sleep. I've seen patients fully kick their leg up in the air and put it down every 10 seconds throughout the night. And that's enough to disrupt they're sleeping. I mean, your body is, is moving, you know, it's enough to wake them up over and over and over and they don't even realize it. Um, restless leg syndrome and then periodic limb movements is what we call it when they're sleeping uh, is much more common than I think that people even realize. And it's much more disturbing to the sleep than I think that people realize. Another one that we see a lot and it could be severe enough to wake you up is grinding or clenching your teeth. You know, all of us, especially over the last couple of years, I'm sure it's the stress of the pandemic and all of that. I mean, we take on so much stress and we try to do it all. And, and I think, um, bruxism comes out in, in our sleeping too, you know, when we're, our body is supposed to be relaxed and there's some component that's keeping it clenching and keeping it, you know, our jaws and all of that stuff. And that could even wake patients up. Yeah. Regarding that, I remember when I first learned about that, I was surprised, um, grinding case, Rarely we would think about that. We will link that with sleep. We always go to a dentist and we are thinking about, oh, this is a bad habit. Maybe it's stress related, but sounds like it actually uh, impact our sleep. 
Yeah. And, you know, and something else that we see just in how the difference in presentation of different sleep disorders is, um, I would run across when I was working with patients in the hospital system, a lot of females that were very underdiagnosed, um, you know, they present with different signs and symptoms and, you know, and they're overall like milder than what men are with OSA. But the interesting part is, once they actually reach menopause, that equals out. So there is just as much of a higher risk when a woman uh, reaches menopause than, um, you know, as a man is. And, you know, some of the theories is that, you know, it's hormone related, obviously, but they're thinking that maybe the high progesterone and estrogen and then the low testosterone, it's almost like act as like a protective me uh, mechanism for premenopausal women from developing OSA to a certain degree. And then once those hormone shift with going through menopause, it, it doesn't protect them, you know, as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I remember I see some women in clinical setting sometime after they tell me some symptoms like grinding the case and uh, the, the teeth at night or, you know, headache in the morning and draw mouth in the morning. Sometimes I get concerned, want them to check out to consider a sleep study, but often they would tell me, oh, but I don't snore at night. So I think that's one of the example I know between women and men, uh, the sleep apnea shows very different. Yeah. And the, you know, another interesting thing that I was super interested when I read about it was primarily for women, they're going to present with a lot of their obstructive sleep apnea during their REM cycles. So men have it throughout the night for the most part. And it's, it's common to have more events in REM in general, but when you're comparing the men and women, women primarily have them more clustered within their REM cycles. And the theory with that is that our um, genioglossus muscle, our, our jawline muscle, it stays at a higher activity in their non-REM sleep than what men's do. Like when we fall asleep, it's natural for everything to just relax. All of our muscles relax, everything. And for men, it's shown that that relaxes a lot more. Women almost stay at a hyper, more, more hyper alert state with their muscle activity until REM. And then, I mean, there's no... REM is a essential, like a paralysis of, you know, our muscles, right? So we, women can't help that with that sense, but some of that was interesting with the, with the difference with it is also that women present much more in REM, you know, than across the board, like men do. Right. Oh, that's very interesting. And talking about the paralysis remind me of the sleep paralysis. And I definitely met several people have severe symptoms of sleep paralysis, actually more than what normally we would experience within REM sleep. So I'm curious, can sleep study detect any of these disorders you just talked about, or it can really just tell us about sleep apnea? Yeah, there's a lot more that uh, a sleep study can tell us, you know, it takes so, so much more I've always said that the sleep technologists and the individuals, you know, that day-to-day -day individual that's with their, your bed partner or whatever, they're the eyes and ears for that physician. You know, the physician can only do so much with what they have. They need a clear definition of signs, symptoms. And I think for some individuals, they just think it's normal with a lot of stuff, or they don't realize how off or weird it might be or different or what you're from what you're supposed to do. So with a sleep study, it's the combination of 
taking those summary notes from that patient and really listening to what, you know, the ins and outs of that patient, you know, whether that's they're keeping a diary or different things like that to track their sleep. It's that combination of that and that sleep study that really gives the best diagnosis, you know, for patients, the patients fill out a pre-sleep questionnaire and then a post-sleep questionnaire. And that really helps them analyze, okay, how did you feel during the night with this? And how did you, did you feel like you woke up a lot? Um, you know, for the case of sleep paralysis, did this happen to you last night in the lab? Were you feeling that at all? And, you know, helping kind of pinpoint the certain times of the night when they were in REM or just different parts ties in the whole story together for that patient to give a better diagnosis. Great. It feels like similar to any other diagnose for any other problems, right? It's a whole picture. It's a, a lot of data gathering. And then with a professional clinician, uh, we, within, special, uh, within this sleep area, they would know a lot to help you figure out diagnose and the treatment plan. What kind of symptom or what kind of signals you know, people should consider catching in their day-to-day life before they consider, oh, maybe I need a sleep study or maybe I need to go to see a sleep doctor for more consultation or evaluation. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of individuals think snoring is normal and it's not. Snoring is never normal. It's always something to get checked out and looked at. But I would first suggest getting a handle on their sleep hygiene, you know, are you going to bed at the same time? Are you waking at the same time? Um, are you getting in any exercise throughout the day? Uh, that can help. Are you getting the natural exposure to light at the right times during the day, you know, to the point of the circadian rhythm, we really function on when we get light and dark. And that's also a cue for us to be awake or asleep, helping to understand that, you know, I, uh, being that preventative measure of what is normal sleep. Am I doing everything that I can to get that? No caffeine in the afternoon, you know, before a certain amount of time before bed. I mean, I think we've heard all of these before, but I don't think people really follow them to a T. I mean, I'm in the sleep field and I don't always follow them to a T. So I think we know what we need to do, but it's important. What I would recommend is to start tracking it And then you're going to be able to better see patterns with that, that when things might be a little off. Right. I like that. I I have to admit, even myself, right? I treat a lot of insomnia patients. Even myself, I don't really follow all the sleep hygiene guidelines. Um, Sometimes get lazy, but I think reflect on myself. I definitely try to check my patterns of sleep. For a while, if I cannot sleep well, I'm trying to understand what's going on with all the habits and all the sleep. I also collect some sleep data from some sleep uh, apps. So to help myself understand, and I feel like whoever considering this or sleep is an issue for them, sounds like they should consider really observe their own sleep and try to um, hopefully they learn something today by listening to this and uh, um, correct some misperceptions about sleep, understand there are certain signals we should take it seriously like snoring, like you mentioned. Yeah. And, you know, and I would also suggest to patients to be their biggest advocate for themselves, you know, sleep medicine. I think we're 
more and more people are being, are aware of, you know, the detrimental effects of untreated sleep apnea and all of that. But I think for the most part, a lot of physicians, especially those that aren't in the sleep medicine field, you know, like primary care physicians, for example, they're the ones that are, you know, you go to see them for this other host of issues. That's where you get your annual physical done, all of that. But a lot of physicians aren't either A, sure of all the signs and symptoms of what to screen for, or B, what to do with that. Um, I think there's such a shortage of sleep medicine physicians in general that I think as a patient advocating for yourself and knowing what's out there for what the, you know, your own signs and symptoms and saying, no, I, I feel like I need to get tested for this. I think the more education out there for, you know, patients and for physicians too, I think it's helpful for patients to understand that not all physicians have a breadth of knowledge of what to do with this type of patient base and to ask then for a referral to, to a specialist is important. Yeah, that's definitely important. I remember I, for myself as a psychologist, I did not get any sleep training during graduate school before I got my license. But after license, I went to get this training and then I was able to detect several symptoms, uh, not related to sleep uh, insomnia, but related to sleep apnea. Actually, in my clinical work, I referred quite several patients to to do a sleep study and uh, they were actually diagnosed later with sleep apnea. So I feel like the, I totally can understand from provider's point of view, if we are better educated, we can also help serve as a referral point and to help navigate the patients to the right place to get the right check out. Yeah. And, you know, I, my work that I do with the um, BRPT, so that's the board of registered polysomnographic technologists. It's a mouthful, <laughs> but basically what that means are, are sleep technologists. And those are the ones that are helping to facilitate this. They're the ones performing those sleep studies and educating and all of that. And the, some of the work that, you know, I do with that is helping to utilize their unique skill set and their talents and their breadth of knowledge to help educate, you know, patients and, you know, other medical providers and all of that, you know, get them out from behind analyzing the data and get them out to, you know, where the human interaction and where they're going to thrive with that, because they know I immediately can look at somebody and say, oh, I think they're at risk for obstructive sleep apnea. And I think a lot of sleep technologists feel the same, um, you know, and with uh, where else can we help? Where else can we go into hospital systems and primary care physician offices and, and where else can we help, you know, ident and help patients learn more about this. Yes. That's wonderful. Uh, thank you for sharing with, with us all of this great knowledge at the end. Um, like if, if the listeners want find you or read more of you, is there any, you know, websites or social media platform? You want people find you? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, they can find out a little bit more about that organization at www.brpt.org um, or at www.enzodata.com is also a little bit more information about just the data analysis and, and all the cool things that we're up to now. Great. Thank you so much. I think this is a great 
basic knowledge to help people really understand what to look for, uh, to understand sleep even further. And uh, all these resources, I will also put them on our show note link. And so when people listen to our uh, episode, they will be able to link to find those two websites with a lot of great resources and information. Thank you, Andrea, for sharing all this with us today. Thank you, Dr. Zhu. It was a pleasure. So after listening to our conversation, do you want to try a sleep study? If you already have done one, please leave me a message. Let me know your experience. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ishan. I will see you next time. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you, the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. Even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who are struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia.